Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 220. We'll conclude the scroll of Esther with a brief summary of chapters 8 through 10 and follow with some thoughts about the impossibility of pleasing people. Well, it seems that the story could have ended here, couldn't it? The previous chapter, chapter 7, concludes with Haman's impalement. The villain driving the action is dead. Game over. The reversal of fortune we teased in the previous episode is complete. Esther receives Haman's expropriated property, Mordechai takes over Haman's position, and how fortuitous, because there's one loose thread left untied. The evil decree ordering the mass murder of the empire's Jews is still in place. And the king is powerless to reverse it. Quote, for an edict that has been written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet may not be revoked. But Esther can now have an edict of her own issued to countermand the previous edict. Quote, the king has permitted the Jews of every city to assemble and fight for their lives. If any people or province attacks them, they may destroy, massacre, and exterminate its armed force together with women and children and plunder their possessions. And as the slaughter unfolds, quote, the city of Shushan rang with joyous cries. The Jews enjoyed light and gladness, happiness and honor, and in every province and in every city when the king's command and decree arrived, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many of the people of the land professed to be Jews, for the fear of the Jews had fallen upon them. And so the day which had been set aside as a day of Jew killing became a day of Jew hater killing. Quote, so the Jews struck at their enemies with the sword, slaying and destroying. They wreaked their will upon their enemies. In the fortress Shushan, the Jews killed a total of 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vaizatha. The ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha the foe of the Jews. But they did not lay hands on the spoil. When the number of those slain in the fortress Shushan was reported on that same day to the king, the king said to Queen Esther, quote, In the fortress Shushan alone, the Jews have killed a total of 500 men, as well as the ten sons of Haman. What then must they have done in the provinces of the realm? What is your wish now? It shall be granted you. And what else is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And for the remainder of chapter 9, we read account after account of Jewish militias going out to kill their enemies, interspersed with verses indicating how it was also a day of feasting and merrymaking, and the explanation for why the festival is called Purim, and how it and its observance came into canon, both as a text and as a tradition. And with the close of the scroll in chapter 10, we read how, quote, King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the mainland and the islands, all his mighty and powerful acts, and a full account of the greatness to which the king Advanced Mordechai are recorded in the annals of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordechai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and great over the Jews, in favor with his many brothers, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace for all its seed. The song Get Up, Stand Up was written by Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and was the first track on the Whalers' 1973 album Burnin'. 
The song became the signature of both Marley and Tosh and Bunny Whaler, but also became an international human rights anthem. Their call for inalienable rights for all humanity was meant to spur people into political action. The song would command center stage in the repertoire of Marley, Tosh, and Whaler for years after the initial release, and since the late 70s, that is the 1970s, it has become the official anthem of Amnesty International. Why this song came to mind is a lyric in the penultimate stanza decrying the isms and schism game pushed by the ruling elite. Quote, You can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time. So now we see the light. What you gonna we going to stand up for yeah, right. yeah, So you better get up, stand up. This line, you can fool some people sometimes, but you can't fool all the people all the time, is a variation of a quote often ascribed to Abraham Lincoln, who said, quote, you can fool some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but you cannot fool all of the people all of the time. Allegedly. And I say allegedly because, as we know from episodes 193 and 197, when I discussed various quotes attributed to Mark Twain, sometimes, actually oftentimes, what we think a person said was never actually said by that person. Despite being cited variously as appearing in an 1856 speech or a September 1858 speech in Clinton, Illinois, there are no known contemporary records or accounts substantiating that Lincoln ever said anything remotely related to fooling people some or all of the time. The earliest known appearance in print of any connection between Lincoln and such a quote is from September 9th, 1885 in the Syracuse Daily Standard of Syracuse, New York. In an article about a convention of prohibitionists, a judge named William J. Grew complained about the actions of state politicians, he spoke a version of the adage without attribution. On March 8, 1886, the Albany Times of Albany, New York, published an interview with Fred F. Wheeler, who was the chairman of a state committee for prohibitionists. The prohibitionists seemed to like this quote a lot. Wheeler used a version of this adage while criticizing politicians for blocking a referendum, and this citation was the earliest ascription to Lincoln. On October 29, 1886, in the Milwaukee Daily Journal of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, they reported the quote as coming from Lincoln directly. A similar attribution later appeared in the New York Times on August 26th and August 27th of 1887. The saying was repeated several times in newspaper editorials later that year and in the following year, and especially in 1889, the saying was embraced as a folksy maxim. It was used in speeches, advertisements, and it even appeared on portraits of Lincoln. In 1899, a writer in the Engineering Times of London noted that the popular maxim had been popularized by the infamous promoter P.T. Barnum, but that didn't stick. And in 1905, the Chicago Tribune and Brooklyn Eagle tried to find contemporaries of Lincoln who could recall Lincoln ever saying this, but could not verify any claims. And so it remains a mystery who said this line first, but there's an interesting twist to this story. We definitively know who said the following quote, and listen closely. You can please some of the people all of the time. You can please all of the people some of the time, but you cannot please all of the people all of the time. These words came from the medieval English monk and poet John Lydgate, and though both quotes express similar ideas, they are substantively different. The Lincoln-Bob Marley quote 
addresses the individual who might be tempted to act in bad faith. And the maxim cautions that you might have some initial success fooling people, taking advantage of them and whatnot, and you may be able to parlay that into an even bigger deception, but you can't roll like that perpetually as a business model. At some point, the people will wise up to your tricks and then there will be consequences. <coughs> so political leaders of all shapes and sizes, be warned, you are on notice. Or as American President George W. Bush would say, There's an old saying in Tennessee, I know it's in Texas, probably in Tennessee, that says, fool me once, shame on, shame on you. <laughs> if fool me, we can't get fooled again. We don't get fooled again. The thing is that the original quote by Lydgate has a very different emphasis. It's directed to the individual who is intending to act or already has acted in good faith. His maxim cautions that despite all of your best efforts, your attempts to satisfy everyone will sadly fail. You can please some of the people all of the time. You can please all of the people some of the time, but you can't please all of the people all of the time. These are wise words indeed for people who work in service of others, like all the folks who are the front-facing folks in Jewish communal life, specifically the executive directors, directors of education and engagement in the synagogues across North America. Rogue Shul first appeared on Twitter in 2019 with wry anecdotes and observations from two anonymous individuals who had first-hand experience of the inner workings of synagogue life. The bio of the Twitter account reads as follows, quote, parody, not commentary on the Jewish future. Shul splainers don't get oneg cookies. They slash them. L'chaim. One recent tweet stated, quote, Simchat Torah is the Adon Olam of the High Holy Days. <laughs> Another featured the clip art of the Shabbat table. You know the one, that stylized rendering of two candles, a challah, and a glass of wine with the following quote. Thank you to this graphic for single-handedly carrying the Jewish community for years. What's it like to be on every Tat Shabbat flyer? Twitter as a platform is designed to broadcast. I have something to say and I have 280 characters in which to say it, unless I want to tweet storm, in which case I can bang out war and peace, as long as it's in 280 character increments. So Rogue Shul on Twitter is one animal, but Rogue Shul Confidential on Facebook is more of a Noah's Ark, with all kinds of folks chiming in with their anecdotes and observations about synagogue life. Here is where one can read about the email received minutes after Yizkor's service from a congregant complaining about the sanctuary being too cold, while another email from another congregant complains even more vociferously that the sanctuary was much too hot to pay attention to the service, and since we're on the subject, the service was also too long, or as another email bleats, too short. There's too much English, or not enough, with a repertoire of songs that is, at the same time, too familiar and thus boring, or dominated by new melodies that no one has ever heard before, which is alienating. And the cantor was way too serious and should have smiled more, but was also too lighthearted for such a solemn day. Or someone leaves a message on the emergency call line to ask where to buy Shabbat candles. Or another, which asks where their loved one was buried in the synagogue cemetery section because they were going to be visiting from out of town next week and wanted to know. 
Now, why do I mention this in the context of the rollicking conclusion to the Scroll of Esther? And by rollicking, I mean solemnity, turning into wild bacchanal by turning against those that would smite you and smiting them so hard that people pretended to be Jews to escape the smiting. And in today's terms, it also includes costumes, spiels, where parodies are produced to gently mock those in power. And as I've said before, honest-to-goodness carnivals with carny games, bouncy castles, and cotton candy. So one would think, after all of that, the rising tension, the building fear finally released in a moment of catharsis and laughter, people would be happy. But we quickly learn that that is not the case. Even in the denouement, the and they lived happily ever after moment of chapter 10, we get this. Quote, King Ahasuerus imposed tribute on the da-da-da-da, I read this before, for Mordechai the Jew was second to King Ahasuerus and great over the Jews in favor with his many brothers, seeking the good of his people and speaking peace for all its seed. So what's the problem here? We could easily fade to black, satisfied, content, right? Right? Well, here's the thing. This English translation hints at something that the Hebrew lays plain. I specifically refer to the phrase in the middle of the verse, but I'll read the whole thing one phrase at a time and translate. Ki Mordechai HaYehudi, for Mordechai the Jew, Mishneh Lamelech HaChashverosh, ranked second or next to King HaChashverosh, Vigadol Yehudim, and was great or highly regarded over the Jews, and popular with the multitudes of his brethren, or in favor with his many brothers, and interceded for the welfare of all of his kindred, and speaking peace for all its seed. Now, there are two moments here where the translation kind of fails in a very telling way. The first is in the phrase, Specifically, the word rov, which translates as majority or most, and could be translated as many, as it shares the same root with the word harbe, which means many. The translators opt for the latter, and I would agree with this choice of many or multitude if the verse did not end with the word zao, which literally means his seed or his descendants. And Robert Alter, keen translator that he is, notes this in his comment on the phrase, quote, Many interpreters understand this as his seed, but a declaration at the very end of Mordechai's status and virtues would surely not conclude by saying that he looked after his own offspring. Rather, he seeks the good of his people and creates conditions of harmonious existence for all its posterity. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Well, considering that Mordechai was the architect of the Jews' salvation, and now he's our man in the palace, our sole representative in the halls of power, he surely strived very hard to please all of the people all of the time. Lives are at stake, as we saw when a particular Judeophobe had the job previously. But as Lydgate would tell you, and as Rogeshul will scream from lived experience, you cannot do this. So it would not be surprising that maybe Mordechai got to a point where he was speaking peace for all of his descendants after getting missives from Jews from the 127 provinces, wondering about the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day, quote, to make them days of banqueting and rejoicing and sending of portions of food to each other and gifts to the poor. 
when I'm away those two days because, you know, we'll be up at the cottage and I can only send one portion of food. But can you tell me, please, again, what's appropriate to send as part of this portion, even though you already sent letters, plural, about it? And which poor? And since I won't be home, can I have the portion forwarded to the palace and pick it up when I get back? Because even though registration for the portions was last week, I didn't send a letter saying I would be participating like we heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for Episode 221, when we begin the Book of Daniel with Chapters 1 through 3.